Amen. You are my sunshine. I <laughs> um, hope you guys enjoyed that new song. I pray that uh, those words mean more as you are faithfully, diligently, and with discipline reading every last word of Genesis and Exodus now. And we'll continue to faithfully read every last word of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That as you do that faithfully, God would bless you with a picture of His greatness. And that if you're not reading it, that He would wonderfully and graciously discipline you for not doing so. And you think I'm kidding. It was funny. I did mean it to be funny. But as I've been saying, you can someone's only you only know for certain that someone's really ever telling the truth when they're being sarcastic or funny. Uh, so I was telling the truth uh, and being funny at the same time. So I want you to to see as we read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, this great God, um, our great God that goes before us. Like you can't walk away. From the book of Exodus, without understanding and, and seeing this great God that goes before us, that walks in front of us. You know, the phrase at the end of that chorus says, He's on our side. I, I'd like to change that to say, We're on His side by His grace. But basically, that's what we're saying. We're on the same team, and thank God that God's, that we're on the same team with God. And, of course, if you're not a follower of Christ, then you're not on the same team with God. But, but nevertheless, God is He's on our side. And, and if, if you don't understand the significance, the idea of God going before us, of God being on our side, uh, that God being a mighty warrior, if you don't understand the significance of that, it's because you probably don't understand the significance of the battle with sin that's in your life. I mean, because, I mean, we're not planning a crusade, you know, to, to take over the United States tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we're not all drawing our swords. We're not all drawing up, uh, you know, battle plans for um, drone wars and stuff like that. Like, we're, we're not doing that as a church, but there is a war. And he is a mighty warrior. And uh, I'm afraid that we maybe don't understand the significance of that because we don't understand the significance of the battle that's in our lives. Um, and, uh, and I'm afraid that maybe that's because we are so focused on the things in this life that make us feel good or at the very least take up our time so we don't have to think about that things, those things which we should be thinking about. And that is the spiritual realities in our lives and the, the sin that's being conquered or should be being conquered. The lives around us that are headed towards hell that we should be engaging in. Um, and if we see that that is the war that we're in and the battle that we're in, then the idea of God being a mighty warrior and going before us means a whole lot more than just, oh yeah, that was a cool thing he did back in Exodus. I'm glad he did that. Thank God. I think when we're in the battle for the kingdom, 
we're in a battle to see the kingdom of God become a reality in our lives and the lives around us, then we understand the weightiness of the fact that he is a warrior, that he is fighting, that this wasn't just an Old Testament reality, it's a reality today, and that he's on our side. When we think about Exodus, and, and as you guys studied this past week in House Gathers, we talked about the idea of biblical theology, or be, being a biblical theologian. Um, and what does it mean to be a biblical theologian? What is biblical theology? Uh, and, and he did not say this in the book that we're reading together, um, Marks of a Healthy Church Member, or whatever, it's, whatever the title of the book is. I keep getting it messed up. But, uh, he's talking about biblical theology. One of the defenses for biblical theology that I don't think he brought up uh, is biblical theology gives us uh, essentially the ability to address uh, virtually any question that might be posed uh, in our day and age. Um, biblical theology is the tracing, if you will, of themes throughout Scripture um, to see what the, the, the big picture says concerning various topics. You see, What's happened in our culture and in many of our lives is that we have relegated the speaking of God to that which is explicitly stated in Scripture. So we want to say, if, if, if this is wrong, then show me a text that explicitly states that it's wrong. Or also known as proof texting. I need a proof text to show me that that's wrong. And biblical theology steps beyond that and says, what is the picture that's being painted with these verses, um, what is the what is being implied in this picture? So we're going to take these twenty verses that may not explicitly condemn or affirm this issue, um, but instead implies that throughout the overall picture. Uh, and so, biblical theology is key if we're going to be faithful Christians. Biblical theology is necessary if we're going to live a life that's faithful to God. Otherwise, we're going to be caught doing things that we shouldn't be doing, and we're going to justify it by saying, well, there's, a, there's not a passage that tells me that I shouldn't do that, or a passage that tells me that I should be doing it this way. And, um, and there may not be. There may not be a passage that, that talks about that, about how we might do this particular activity or how we may should not be doing this and um, you know there, there's there's nothing scripturally just to give you a, a, a quick example there's nothing scripturally that that says explicitly you should not be transgender I mean that, that I can think of you can't show me a text that says don't put yourself on time magazine you know uh, boasting about the fact that you've had a sex change um, you may not be able to find that and now, for the rest of you, you're like, for many of us in this room, we're going, well, yeah, well, duh, that's wrong. And then I would say, well, show me in the text, and you wouldn't be able to show me. And so the point is, is that biblical theology allows us to take all the texts that pertain to sexuality, that pertain to, uh, to sexual immorality, and, and to put those together to see what is the picture that's being painted here. And certainly, the idea of trans transgender, whatever that, the, the noun of that would be is is not uh, is it is certainly prohibited within that picture. 
It doesn't fit in that picture. It is certainly prohibitive. Um, we can't just say, well, that's wrong because, you know, I think it's wrong and I'm sure the Bible says something about it. That's not good enough. So, biblical theology is essentially what we're doing in this big series of uh, going through the Pentateuch. We're, we're taking a look at the big themes throughout the Pentateuch. And what we've done in Genesis is we did a th- uh, trace basically three great themes concerning the character of God. One was that God is holy and He will judge us. The second is that God is merciful. And the third was that God is sovereign. And then the kind of the fourth theme, not necessarily related to God, that we traced was what is man, man's rightful response to this aspects of God's character, to these themes of God's character. That God is holy and He will judge sin, that He is merciful, He is sovereign. Now what is man's response to that? And we talked about how that's faith and obedience. That we see the picture, not just, we're not just going, okay, well, yeah, duh, we need to respond in faith and obedience. No, we see in the book of Genesis that the rightful response to the character of God that's being painted is faith and obedience. So, as we continue through this, we're, we're again, we're, we're tracing some of these themes. And in the book of Exodus, we will trace this week and next week more closely the theme of God's sovereignty of God's sovereignty the picture will continue to zoom in on God's work among his people and we will see his sovereignty come to greater light now just to kind of step back up to the the very big picture from here to the rest of the Pentateuch we will see the story of Abraham and his descendants as they make their journey to the promised land. That's what's going to happen over the rest of the Pentateuch. Abraham and his descendants. Now we're not just talking about like son and grandson. We're talking like hundreds of years of descendants. On their journey, in their journey, on their way to the promised land. So to pick up what we touched on last week, we're going to talk more today about God's sovereignty. And again, my assumption here is that you're reading along, that you've read Exodus, or at least the first half roughly, of it, and we'll finish the rest of it next week. Um, so as we talk about God's sovereignty, I think most of us would agree that God is sovereign, right? If you don't agree that God is sovereign, please raise your hand. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, you might get kicked out. I'm just, I'm just kidding. God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign. We, we would all agree that. At the very least, I mean, even though we might all have different degrees to which we think He is sovereign, we're all going to agree that he's sovereign. Now, as we think about sovereignty, let me just give us just a simple definition, like an operational definition that I'm operating off of. I guess that was a little redundant, but the operational definition of sovereignty basically is this. God is supreme ruler or the supreme authority over all. What he says goes. What he wants he gets what he plans comes to pass. Nothing happens outside of his meticulous planning and providence. He, what he wants, what he plans and his wisdom will come to pass. He is ruler over all. He is the supreme 
power. No one is in power except that which God puts in power. He is the king. As I say to my kids, who is the boss? Mommy and daddy? Well, God is the boss, okay? So if he's not a boss that you can thwart, he's not a boss that you can say no to, he's a boss that what he wants happens. When we say God is sovereign, what I'm saying is that when he makes decrees, he sees them to completion. They will come to pass. Now the problem is that many of us find ourselves living often, I think, as if we do not believe that God is sovereign. That He is the supreme ruler. Now again, to be supreme ruler means that He's in charge. To be supreme ruler means that everything will happen as He sees fit down to the most smallest detail. I'm still I'm looking forward to when we get to Leviticus. Uh, I know one of the things that Rusty's going to draw out for us is that there is no detail that God is not concerned with. So why are we so able and willing and, and ready to just accept ambiguity in life? I don't understand that. God cares about specificity and details. And I'm saying that as not a detailed person. Like, I don't worship being detailed. Like, my wife is the detailed one in our relationship. I'm the big picture. I'm like, forget the details. And, but God cares about the details, and He does not leave things up to chance. So as we think about, and I think about this problem maybe some of us find ourselves in, is that we don't, we, we practically live as though we don't believe God is the supreme ruler. And maybe we believe someone else is, or maybe even ourselves is the supreme ruler. So here's a couple questions. Do, we, do you ever find yourself worrying Anybody ever find yourself worrying? Find yourself worrying. You are living as if God is not sovereign. It's either that or you don't think that what He's doing is good. You take your choice. You either think that He's sovereign and what He's doing is not good or you just don't think He's sovereign. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to make you worry about your worrying. But, but like, if you worry then you're not believing and living as though God is sovereign. Do you ever find yourself devising a plan without seeking God? Ever find yourself devising a plan for your life, your kid's life, your spouse's life, your job, uh, without seeking God, without asking God, without trusting God? Now I think for many of us, we don't find ourselves sitting at a desk planning and devising a plan without seeking God. Many of us just live life on a whim without seeking God, which is the same thing. I'm living life as though I don't trust or need the supreme ruler of the universe. So we're living as though he's not sovereign. We're living as though I can do this. And I don't need the sovereign God. I don't need His plans. I don't need His blessing even. I just know He'll clean up the mess when He's done. So you have a convenient sovereignty. So God's not sovereign enough for me to seek Him with my plans, but He's sovereign enough to clean up when I screw up at the end. Third, do you ever find yourself wanting to be in control? 
I want to be in control. I got the best way. Probably many of us don't think about the fact that we want to be in control. It's just when we lose control, we get upset about it. For many of us, it's because we think we'd be the best one in control. We don't, we don't think about the fact that when we lose control, God is still in control. But you're upset because you're not in control. But God's still in control. And it doesn't matter if you're in control. What matters is that God's in control. I think it's during these times, and I, I, I wish I could ask 500 more like, uh, uh, evaluative, like evaluating questions for us this morning, but just give us a gist of are we thinking, are we living as though God is not sovereign? And it's during these times that, that you are not believing that God is sovereign. And so it's interesting, even in a church like ours that, that I think has a very high view, I know at least Rusty and I as your elders have a very high view of God's sovereignty, and we still struggle, even myself, struggle days here and there and oftentimes that not believing that God is sovereign, living as though He is not. So as we work through Exodus, I want us to see a marvelous picture of God's sovereignty. And I would say this, you can't turn too many pages in this Bible without just simply being amazed by God's sovereignty if you open your eyes to see it. We do not serve a God who is weak, dependent, and reactive. We serve a God who is strong, independent, and proactive. God is never on the defense in the sense that He sits around and waits for the the enemy to attack. He's the one that's setting the pace. He's the one that even sets the pace of the enemy. The enemy throws a grenade when God tells the enemy he can throw a grenade. We will see that he is divine, that he is the supreme ruler of the universe. We will see this, and if you did renovate us, you won't be surprised by these words. We will see that he has exhaustive, meticulous, divine sovereignty. Exhaustive, meticulous, divine sovereignty. Again, those words were on Renovate Us this past week. The main theme we see, I think, all throughout Exodus concerning God is that God alone works sovereignly. God alone works sovereignly. Now, when, I, when I'm using sovereignly, I'm using that, I, I, I hate to have to keep qualifying sovereignly, but what I mean by sovereignly is the ultimate sovereign, the, the king of kings, the sovereign of sovereigns. Anything, when we think of sovereignty at the human level, is not what we think of when we think of sovereign at the divine level. So our president of the United States might think that he is the sovereign, or our Congress might think that they are the sovereigns over this country. And they might in many ways be. Or the Supreme Court might be a better example of that. But they are not the sovereigns of the universe. They have not been the sovereigns from all of time. 
and they will not continue to be the sovereigns for the rest of time. God alone is sovereign. So when we think of sovereign, let's detach our minds from the idea of rulership and kingliness from a human perspective and realize that they are just simply very pale shadows of the ultimate reality that is God's sovereignty. That the king who has authority or that boss that has authority or even elders that have authority, that that is just a pale shadow of the ultimate authority and the ultimate sovereignty that God has. An infinite greatness to his sovereignty. So in God alone we see works sovereignly and we'll see even in those who seemingly sovereignly work against God are simply acting and working out underneath the sovereignty of God. We'll see that in the book of Exodus. I don't think we saw too many of those pictures like that in the book of Genesis. But remember that God throughout Scripture increasingly reveals Himself. If you think of an artist who kind of begins to paint the picture, like as that artist goes, the picture begins to be more clear and, and more brilliant in color and more defined in contrast. And, and then it begins to go, oh, that's the picture. But then they add like a couple more details. And you go, oh, I see it more clearly now. And then some more details are added to it. And oh, I, I see it even better. That's what's going on with Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, God is simply revealing Himself. He's, he's adding more paint to the canvas of His revelation who he is now when we think of god alone works sovereignly those words are chosen specifically god alone he alone he is alone in his sovereignty that he works in his sovereignty he doesn't sit back and chill in his sovereignty and that of course he is indeed sovereign and of course god encapsulates the divinity of his sovereignty But here, I think, is an area that we struggle with when it comes to God's sovereignty, when it comes to viewing God, period, and that is we think God as more of a manager of resources than we do the sovereign enactor of the world, a resource manager. Many Christians have simply, I think, reduced God down to some sort of resource available for their times of need. And I would venture to say that many of us in this room do the same thing. We go to God when we have a time of need. I need to pay this bill. So I'll dip into my God resource bank. I need to get healthy. So I will dip into the resource bank. I need to feel better emotionally today. So, let me dip into my resource bank. Then we might even be a little more spiritual and think about those impoverished people over there or those people in need over there and we say, well, let me dip into my resource bank. Now certainly God does own a a cattle on a thousand hills. I think about that, a thousand cattle on a hill. That wouldn't be very much. He owns lots of cattle, which means he's got lots of resources. But God has become this sort of passive resource manager where 
He simply stores and organizes the things that we might possibly need in order to carry out our sovereign wills, our sovereign plans. God, I really want to accomplish this agenda in my life. How about you send me some aid? I want this job. I want my kids to make me look good. Send me some aid. But Exodus paints a God in a much different light. He gives us a much different picture of God. Instead of a passive God, He is anything but. Instead, His sovereignty essentially demands His activity. He will be active in His sovereignty. So some of us think of God as a resource manager. I think the other kind of hill that we have to overcome or bump that we have to get over when it comes to God's sovereignty is that many Christians, even in here, we try to define God's sovereignty by first beginning with our freedom. We want to define God's sovereignty by beginning with man, and particularly man's freedom, or at least our perceived, even idolized freedom. We begin there and go, now let me work out from me as the center of the universe and define God's sovereignty. Now, when we think of as a church, you know, you guys hear the word reformed kind of dancing around out there often. And, uh, you know, Rusty and I are certainly reformed in our theology. Um, and I can't explain what all that means. But here, just like reformed thinkers ahead of us, insists that we must start with God himself and then work out to define reality from there. So that's part of what it means to be reformed in our thinking is that we don't start with man, we don't start with our perceived reality, instead we start with God and work out from there. We let God be the center and then we define reality or define our perceptions and, and help clarify what we see and understand from there as we move out from God. And the Bible consistently wants us to think of God as in control of everything that takes place in this world. Everything. Both the large things and the small things. All that is good and all that is evil. Circumstances even in nature. We think of tornadoes and stuff. Those do not act apart from God's sovereignty. God is even in control of and sovereign over our free choices and actions of His people and of all the people of the world. This is the picture that God's Word paints for us. If you've read Exodus, you see God's sovereignty in this light and to this clarity. The Scriptures present God as having ultimate and precise control over everything that happens. Ultimate and precise control over everything. So many Christians accept God's sovereignty, or so they think they do, up until the point of man's free will. Right, so God is sovereign up until the point where I start my choosing. Now, I'm not going to treat this whole thing right now, but I just want to give us a little bit of a, I'm trying to set the stage for 
for where our idea of sovereignty begins to rub with, the, with God's idea of sovereignty as painted within His, within his Word. So again, we're not going to solve the, the two issues of God's sovereignty and man's free will this morning. I'm not even going to begin to make us think we're going to solve that. But certainly, you know, you know where I lean and, and Rusty leans on that, at least many of you do. But, but understand that many, and we, sh- we struggle, we want to begin with, I get to choose... And then God is sovereign over everything else. Understand that when we think that way, we think that God is subject and submissive to our sovereign choice over life, particularly even salvation. I mean, just think about the weight of that statement. That God is submissive and subjective to my sovereign choosing, even concerning my salvation. That's a pretty heavy statement. Let's take a look just very briefly. Ephesians 1.11. You can turn there later. I'm just, it'll be up on the screen. It says this. This is Paul. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to to the counsel of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now if you understand Pauline writings, Paul often begins in a letter with that which makes God praiseworthy. Okay? So he begins a letter with, we should praise God, and here's why. We should praise God, here's why. And then he gets into the working out of that later on in his book. So here at the very beginning, 11 verses in, Paul is saying this is why God is praiseworthy. In Paul's list of blessings here, there are two main things. One, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that He predestined us for adoption through Christ. That God chose us in Christ. You can go back and read the rest of that chapter, but God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and that God predestined us for adoption through Christ. So at the top of Paul's list of why we should praise God is His election and His predestination, His sovereignty over our choosing. He says this, is why God is praiseworthy. Not just, here's a couple things that you can get over and uh, just kind of push to the side. No, he's saying these are things that make my God worthy of worship. That His sovereignty doesn't stop where man's sovereignty begins. Paul says the inheritance is ours and guaranteed because God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Consider this. The very fact that God reigns over our election and predestination to adoption makes God praiseworthy. You think that? Paul thinks that. And, and, and if God's sovereignty over election and predestination is a point of tension for you, 
then you don't have the same heart that Paul has. Paul says God's worthy of praise, not worthy of intellectual tension for your heart and mind. Now, if we're not careful and we begin to understand God's sovereignty by beginning with man's free will, then we are in danger of misunderstanding God. That's what's at stake here. And that's why I bring up this issue, because as we think about sovereignty, again, a lot of us, I'm just, we're just going to jump right to the point where many of us will, if we're going to struggle with sovereignty, it's going to be at this idea of election. So let's go ahead and jump in there. That's why I put it here at the beginning, so we can just get that out from the very beginning and say, you can't start there. Exodus, Genesis, doesn't start there. It starts with God sovereignly working His plan. We say, well, Adam and Eve, they sovereignly chose. Um, we can save the discussion for another time. God is not just some resource available at our beckoning. And He is not some sovereign who is sovereign until our sovereignty begins. But instead, He is exhaustively and meticulously, supremely ruling over every detail and matter of life on this planet and in this universe. No star glows without His saying. No star falls. No star flies through the sky. No lightning bolt strikes without God's decree. And it's not that God of the universe whose sovereignty magically stops at the point where our sovereignty begins. No. He reigns and rules over our choosing as well. So in all of Scripture, I think probably the greatest example of God's sovereignty is found in the story of Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, certainly there's many, many other great pictures, and I'm not making a definitive statement. I just think it's one of the greatest pictures, if not the greatest picture of God's sovereignty is found in the story of Moses. And that is, we're going to take a kind of two look, like, take a look at kind of two aspects of this story. One that is good, one that is bad. And the first is this, God exercises His sovereignty in the good that is accomplished through Moses. Now certainly, He exercises His sovereignty in all but I want to draw out a distinction here. So I just want to say God is sovereign over the good things that is accomplished through Moses. Later I'm going to imply the bad things as well. But for right now, he certainly dis displays this picture of sovereignty over the good that is accomplished through Moses. Again, not that all of Moses' life was gloriously righteous. He was not Jesus Christ, right? But a type of Christ. But overall, the tasks accomplished in his life, we would understand them as good. Like what Moses does is good. For many of us, it's praiseworthy. This is, this is good. He wasn't, he wasn't characterized as evil and bad, at least in his totality. He did bad things, but we consider him good. What he did was good. What he did for God was good. What God called him to do was good. In the first place we see the sovereignty of God is in the raising up of Moses. So God raises up Moses. That's the first place that we see the picture of God's sovereignty. Now, I'm going to give you kind of an overview real quick of Exodus in three parts. Exodus 1 covers many 
centuries post-Genesis. Exodus 2 covers about 80 years. So you got hundreds of years in Exodus 1, 80 years in Exodus 2. And then Exodus 3 through 40 covers about a year. So that's important to think and keep in mind as you're reading Exodus. This is not just, you know, chronologically, you know, like a chapter doesn't equal like a day or a year or something like that. You, you've got different time spans that are happening. Exodus 1 is many centuries. Exodus 2 is about 80 years. Exodus 3 through 40, the rest of Exodus is a little more than one year. Now, if you remember, at the end of Genesis... Again, I'm assuming that you're reading. At the end of Genesis, Joseph and his family were in Egypt, right? Everybody with me? Joseph and his family were in Egypt at the end of Genesis. And then by the very end of Genesis, Joseph dies. Now over the next several decades and centuries, the Israelites grow in number and Joseph is forgotten. That's so cool. I'm not, not kidding. I didn't time it this way. But this is a story I was reading to my boys last night uh, in their uh, uh, big picture storybook Bible. This was just cool just to you know, kind of be like preaching to my boys. I'm like, oh, I wanted to tell them this and tell them that. And they're just like, I want to go to bed, you know. Can we play? <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. Uh, so anyways, Joseph, what happens is over the, again, over these next several decades and centuries, they begin to forget Joseph. Joseph ultimately is forgotten. So Joseph's life, what happened? His life in and being sold into slavery and his life coming into Egypt allows for the habitation of the Israelites among the Egyptians. That's what kind of paved that way for this cohabitation between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But now that Joseph is, is simply a forgotten memory or not even a memory at all, the Egyptians turn on the Israelites and turned them into slaves, into free labor to build their big wonder of the world and other wonders for that matter. They forced them to build their great big pyramids and other public displays. What was privilege is now oppression. See that? What was privilege is now oppression. Joseph was basically the height of authority in Egypt. And his people came in underneath his authority, and then he's forgotten. And all of a sudden, the Egyptians look around and go, oh my goodness, look at all these Israelites. They could overtake us. They, they, could, they could hurt us. They could take our country. They could do whatever. Let's make them slaves. Let's put them now under oppression. Guys, even oppression to the extent of murdering the young male Israelites. We will kill them. I don't understand that because then like in a generation they wouldn't have any more workers uh, which didn't make any sense to me but, but they were worried about them growing up and overtaking them that this whole new generation would overtake their country so you see oppression now becomes the characteristic of the people of God they are being oppressed but then in the midst of this terrible oppression God protects what? He protects Moses he protects Moses when he should have been killed as well. Think about this. 
just an interesting thought that uh, I was when I was reading uh, Mark Dever on this on this passage in this book. He's talking about Moses being saved in an ark, just as Noah was saved in an ark. Um, I thought it was just interesting. It's not necessarily gospel, but he was he was saved via the water in a carriage that protected him. So just see God's sovereignty in that. Then Moses, think about this, Moses sent down the stream to be found by who? None other than the Pharaoh's daughter. Like, how does that happen? You know? I mean, I mean, I mean just dream with me for a second. I mean, maybe... She was like, there was a creek, one creek in Egypt. And it went, happened to go by the Pharaoh's house, you know. And she went up like 100 yards upstream was like, ha, today she's out me. There goes Moses. But the fact is, guys, nevertheless, she, she didn't have to keep the baby. She could have gave, given it to someone else. She could have said, let it die. God sovereignly chooses to put the baby in Pharaoh's house. Now, we don't know much about Moses' life, except for the 80 years of it that is in Exodus chapter 2. But what we do know is a couple things. We know that he became a murderer. Moses, one of God's great deliverers, was a murderer. If you think about that, even King David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. As a result of this murder, what happens is Moses flees to the wilderness, ends up in Midian. There were other descendants of Abraham, and then while he's in Midian, he marries. So we see God's sovereignty just simply in the way God raises up Moses. I mean, Moses, who, who leaves, who was in the Pharaoh's house, returns to the, well, eventually return to the Pharaoh's house, but... Maybe he wouldn't have gotten ear from the Pharaoh had he not grown up in the Pharaoh's house to see God's sovereignty over every detail of the situation. Next we see God's sovereignty that God calls Moses. God sovereignly chooses to now call the one whom he's prepared to be his deliverer. Think of the story of the burning bush. Here we have the creator of the universe, think about this with me, inviting, calling Moses to be a participant in his plan. God does not need Moses. God is not dependent on Moses. God is not reactive to Moses. Instead, God calls Moses to be his agent of deliverance. Moses is given instructions to bring God's people out of Egypt and to inform the Pharaoh of this plan. Now think how audacious of a plan this is. Pharaoh, thousands upon thousands of slaves building these great monuments to the Pharaoh's name and to the Egyptians' praise. And Moses is just supposed to walk into Pharaoh and say, look dude, you're going to let God's people go. Right? I mean, <laughs> this makes me think of the song, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Whoa, whoa, let my people go. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, think about that. Like, 
that's a little kitty song that makes light of, I'm not saying don't sing the song, don't hear me to say that, but that's a song, a kitty song that makes light of the fact that this lonely murderer who ran away from the Egyptians is going to waltz back in to the Pharaoh and say, hey, you, let God's people go. And I don't think there was no, huh, in the middle of that, right? <laughs> Pharaoh's going, huh? Get out of here, right? I mean, I'm surprised Pharaoh didn't have him killed on the spot. How audacious of a thing that you would tell me to let my slaves go. But God calls Moses to this task. God calls Moses to something that only God can accomplish, right? God calls Moses to only something God can do. It's funny that Jesus would call Nicodemus to do something that only God could do as well. The third place we see the exercise of God's sovereignty is that God uses Moses to lead his people. God uses Moses to lead his people. So after God calls Moses, he sends him back to Egypt. Moses announces his plan to Pharaoh. I'm just tracing the story here with us real quick. Moses announces his plan to the Pharaoh, and as you know, Pharaoh will not let the people go. Finally, after all the plagues, and I got to see little pictures of that last night in the, the, their uh, boys' storybook Bible. Finally, in Exodus 11 and 12 comes the plague of the firstborn. In Exodus 12, we see the Passover feast. and We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But this feast was meant to remind all future Israelites about the plague. To excuse me, to remind them of what God did. The time when God provides a substitute for the people that would ultimately set the people free. It wasn't just a reminder of the night that they put blood on their doorpost and, and their, their kids didn't die. It's a reminder that God shed the blood of someone else so that his people could go free. That's the Passover. And then in Exodus 13 and 14, God has victory over the Egyptians. We have the parting of the Red Sea and, and the destruction of the Egyptians at that point. Then in Exodus 15 through 18, Moses and the people journey toward Mount Sinai for approximately three months. We're not going to get to Mount Sinai. That'll be next week. But even amidst this journey toward Mount Sinai, we continue to see God's sovereignty and His provision for His people. Think about God's sovereign provision of food for His people. How about the danger and the overcoming of the Malachites? God protects His people. Now it's easy for us to see the wonderful work of God in the good work of Moses. Like it's easy for us to look at that and go, wow, yeah, praise God. He was sovereign over all these wonderful, miraculous things that he did through Moses. We see the sovereignty displayed in the situation, the details that were orchestrated, the events that happened, the life paths that were crossed. But what about Pharaoh? What about God's sovereignty and Pharaoh? Can you see the sovereignty exercised over the king 
of the Egyptians. What is the tension concerning Pharaoh and God's sovereignty? Here we see that God exercises His sovereignty in the evil that is accomplished through Pharaoh. It's easy for us to see, and when I see what I mean by easy for us to see, it's more like easy for us to accept God's good, sovereign work through the good works of Moses. It's harder for us to see, or maybe a better word is to accept, God's sovereignty over the evil works of Pharaoh. So God was not just sovereignly working through the hands of Moses and left everything else in the hands of Pharaoh, right? I want to make sure we're drawing this distinction. It's not God was in control of everything that is Moses, and then everything that is Pharaoh was left up to Pharaoh, and God simply responded appropriately, if you will, to Pharaoh. It wasn't simply God knew what Pharaoh was going to do, so he just simply responded and was submissive to the acts and the works of Pharaoh. No, God was sovereign over Pharaoh just as meticulously and just as exhaustively as he was over the acts of Moses and his people. God worked sovereignly through Pharaoh. Now, just for the sake of time, we're not talking about God doing evil. That's another discussion for another time. Instead, we're talking about God being sovereign over evil. That even evil is done for the glory of God. Suffice for now, God can, can ordain the murderous actions of a murderer, and yet the murderer is still the responsible party. That's a, again, that's a very deep discussion we can have at another time. But God can still be supreme over that. So just like the story concerning Moses, God exercises His sovereignty in the case with Pharaoh as well. So where do we see God's sovereignty in the case with Pharaoh? We see God places Pharaoh in His position. So like we moan and complain. I I know Facebook is, is the most glorious place to complain about maybe our president or congressman. Do you understand that God has placed that president over our nation? I don't think God is red or blue, by the way. It's purple. Just kidding. God places Pharaoh in his position. God places Pharaoh in his place of power. Think of Exodus 1.8. Now there, was a, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. God purposed to install a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Do you think God could have sent someone who remembered Joseph to Pharaoh and say, Hey, do you remember this nice guy named Joseph? He was here about 400 years ago. and you know, He was cool. Uh, you should be nice to his people. Like, do you think God could have done that? God certainly could have done that. But instead, God purposes to put a Pharaoh that would not know Joseph, that would ultimately lead to the oppression of his people. Then Exodus 9, 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What is he referring to here in Exodus 9, 16? He's talking about the raising up of Pharaoh. 
He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, meaning I have raised Pharaoh up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He, he raised up a leader who would oppress his people so that he could show that his name is worthy to be proclaimed in all of the earth. God raised up Pharaoh. God was no less sovereign in raising Pharaoh than he was in raising up Moses. So God sovereignly chooses and raises to power a Pharaoh who will in turn bring about great oppression on God's people. Let's look at an old prophecy that, we, that you should have read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. It says this, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell over Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Where's that at? Egypt. And will be servants there. Huh. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to their fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God knew of the oppression because he planned it. God was sovereign over these events. God was sovereign even over the slaughtering of the Israelite children. Just a quick side note. Obviously, the Holocaust of our age is abortion, right? But I want us to know, church, God is sovereign over that Holocaust. That doesn't mean that he takes pleasure in that. But he is sovereign over that. And he works all things to the counsel of his will. What does it mean to be sovereign amid these events? I mean, these events were God's plan. These events happened just as God had intended, referring to here to the, to the oppression of God's people, the slavery of God's people. So let's just real quick, and I know for some of this, this might kind of, you know, part of your mind here for just a few seconds, but let's trace the spectrum of God's sovereignty. Just write these verses down, we can look at them later. Deuteronomy, just, just so like, what is He sovereign over? What about evil? God's sovereign over evil. Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. It says this, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is God, right? Oh, but God can't kill. What happened in the flood? First Samuel 2, 6-7. <clears throat> the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. 
kind of from the Pentateuch to historical books now to prophetic books. Isaiah 45, verse 5 through 7. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You mean God has control over the evil and the bad things that happen? Absolutely. Does God decree the good and the bad things that happen? Absolutely. I just want you to see the extent of God's sovereignty is not limited to that which makes us feel good and pretty about God. Christian, I want to think about what this means for the way you view evil in your life and in this world around you. Think about how this impacts the way you counsel your own heart and the way you counsel those around you. I mean, some of us counsel as if it's, oh, poor God, he didn't want that pain to happen in your life. Hmm. Maybe he sovereignly decreed and brought it to pass. Maybe this would guide our prayers. I have been known to pray that God would bring about destruction in someone's life so that they would know Him. And that stinks. I mean, I, I'm not saying like, and I don't take like comfort in doing that. Like, I don't think we should take comfort in going, oh, if anything, God have mercy and bring them to, to knowledge of you. But Now again, I know there are so many implications for what does it mean for God to be sovereign over evil. We don't have time today. We're already pretty much out of time, but what is interesting is that God not only chooses and raises to power a Pharaoh who will oppress his people, but he also hardens Pharaoh. Now this troubles lots of people, right? God sovereignly works to not only place Pharaoh in authority, but then he hardens his heart as well. Now God could have put this dude in, in, in authority, he hated his people, and then all of a sudden the Pharaoh miraculously goes, oh, I think I should love them, right? Peace, love, happiness. Give me a peace sign and some tie-dye. Like, let's just love the, the Israelites and be happy with them. Right? We'll give them part of the land over here and they can go be themselves. No. Instead, he does just the exact opposite. He hardens his heart. Exodus 4.21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But guess what? I'll make it really easy on you. I'll harden his heart. How about that? So that he will not let my people go. I'm going to go have you do all these crazy things, and by the way, they're not going to work because Pharaoh's so evil. No, they're not going to work because I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I mean, how's that for encouragement, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, I want you to go do all these awesome things, and by the way, their heart's going to be hardened, and they're not going to do what you tell them to do. Sound familiar? Have any co-workers, any neighbors, whose hearts are hardened towards the gospel? So does Moses just kind of shrink back and go, all right, well, since they're not going to work, I'm just going to chill over here. What's Moses do? He goes and proclaims the word of God. 
even knowing that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We don't even know your coworker, your neighbor, if God's heart is going, if, sorry, if that neighbor or that coworker's heart is not going to be softened just in the words and the conversation that you have. You don't know. Moses knows. God says himself, you're going to go do these things and it's not going to work. You're going to go proclaim that I'm the king of the universe and I can send these, these miraculous plagues and I'm going to cause disaster among his people and at the, at the same time, like he is not going to get it. How about that? For encouragement. Exodus 9, 34 through 10, 1 says this, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go and go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Think about what he's just said here in these few verses. Here we have Pharaoh who is hardening his own heart. And we have God who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's Pharaoh's choosing to harden his own heart and God's sovereign working over Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So that God is both sovereign and yet Pharaoh is responsible. God controlled the events of Pharaoh's heart in such a way to bring about his divine decree where Pharaoh was responsible for hardening his heart and yet God was sovereign over the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The next place we see God's sovereignty displayed in Pharaoh is that God defeats Pharaoh. That God still wins at the end of the day. So here, just think about this. Like, like the task at hand might be pretty easy. God sends a couple plagues and then he goes, lets the people go. But what God does, he makes the situation gets harder and harder and harder and harder. So his takes more glory and glory glory and glory, more display, more greatness, more greatness, more greatness to overcome this big obstacle. So his name is worthy to be praised among the world. I mean, think about it. If y'all walked in, we might be able to take an army in and overcome the Egyptians. God sends plagues and they still don't work. I mean, I'd have given in, you know, at the first one or two plagues. Like, I'm done. Bugs? That's not happening. Okay. Not that many. You know, right? A river that turns to blood? Yeah, I'm, I'm done. God defeats Pharaoh. So in Exodus 14, God defeats Pharaoh, ultimately at the Red Sea. See God's mighty supreme rulership here in that he even controls the sea and its boundary markers. It's not just that God set the boundary markers of the ocean and said, you will start and stop here. But he says, I'm going to set the boundary markers of where the sea will begin and where it will end. And then now for just a moment in time, I'm going to change those boundary markers. This part of the sea will stop here. This part of the sea will stop here. Let me spread this apart. God's people go through and he says, ah, change my mind. And they're back. So, See God's sovereignty and the good Moses, the good life of Moses, and then the evil that the Pharaoh does. Now the question is, how do we live in light of God's sovereignty? So many implications for this. We're just going to talk just very quickly about a couple of these. How do we live in light of God's sovereignty? 
One, we trust that He's in control so that I don't have to be. We trust that He's in control so that I don't have to be. Let me comment on that for just a few moments. Again, this is going to be very, very brief. Everything in your life and mine happens as God purposely places and ensures it's happening. It happens because God wants it to happen. It happens the way it happens because God wants it to happen that way. Each piece of the puzzle of your life is meticulously being put into place just as God had intended it long ago. Many of you consider life must be consider life must be a certain way and that you must be the one to get it there. Right? Now let me ask you a couple questions with that. If that's where your heart tends to rest, is are you sovereign like God? Do you understand that you're operating on the assumption that you have the best plan? Just practically, can you make the puzzle pieces fit together? Can't. Can't, so stop. I mean, have a plan, but submit that plan to God. Develop that plan under God's sovereignty. Let Him develop that plan. Let Him bring it to pass. Next implication, we trust that God is active, so I can't be lazy. We trust that God is active. It's, we see in Exodus that God is anything but reactive, and we see that God is anything but lazy. We see that God is anything but passive. So pick your words. God, we trust that God is active, so I can't be passive. Can't be lazy. So for some of us, we think that God is some dude that put things in order and then took a really long rest break. Like that's my kind of God, right? Where life is easy and chill. Does Exodus paint the picture of a God who has chosen the easy and chill path? No. Matter of fact, he makes his path harder. Like, think about that. Like, he could have just went in and done the whole Pharaoh thing again at, like, plague number one. But instead he goes, I'm going to make it harder. I mean, if I were to look, if we were to look at each other in some of our lives, we would draw a picture of a God from that life that would see that he's lazy, comfort-driven God that just kind of goes by with that which is least stressful. But God is not. God is supremely ruling and exercising his power. As we are His representatives, how do we reflect that? So if God is an active, sovereign God, we should be active, like co-rulers, or not co-rulers, but sub-rulers, you know, uh, ruling underneath of God's sovereignty. As God is not the kind of king that we imagine from the movie theaters where he sits up on a throne and just says, yeah, yeah, bring me my grapes, right? No, he's a warrior. He goes before his people. He's a great God. I envision God to be more like Russell Crowe in Gladiator, right? He's out there fighting the people. Not sitting back. 
last, or second to last, we trust that God determines the circumstances. We trust that God determines the circumstances. If God is not submissive to the circumstance, but indeed the circumstances of your life are submissive to Him, and my joy is found in God and not my circumstances, then should my joy ever be shaken? Right? And that's a long train of thought. I'll read it again. If God is not submissive to the circumstances, but indeed the circumstances are submissive to Him, and my joy is found in God and not my circumstances, then I, my joy, should not be shaken. It's not because I have some resolve, but because I repent for worshiping the circumstances instead of worshiping the one who determines the circumstances. I think many of us spend too much time worshiping the circumstances instead of worshiping the God who determines the circumstances. Your circumstances are the way they are because God ordained them to be the way they are. And when we, when we hate the way our circumstances are, then we hate what God had planned for us. I'm just saying, be careful. Those circumstances that God has planned for you is for your good, for your sanctification. And to wish them away is to, at the very least, begin questioning whether or not what God is doing for you is for your good. Guys, the oppression of God's people is for their good. At the very least, it was to show them that they could not save themselves. And my, that's a picture that we need painted for us often, that we cannot save ourselves. <clears throat> Lastly, we trust that we trust that good will come for those who are His. We trust that good will come for those who are His. His children. Again, kind of tagging off the circumstances here, God had planned a time of great oppression for His people. In fact, He warned of it back in Genesis 15, like we took a look at. A time of great oppression, 400 years to be exact. All throughout Scripture, we see ultimately each event that takes place. We see each of those events as shadows and markers pointing to an, ultimately, an ultimate reality in Christ. But here, God orchestrated all these events in order to show His people that one day, unlike Moses, unlike Noah, unlike David, there will be an ultimate deliverer that would not deliver from physical oppression, at least initially, but would deliver from a spiritual oppression. I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. It says this. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this morning, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to, that, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. In this manner you shall eat it. I'm sorry, in this man, I already read that part. In this, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice who is sovereign in the situation. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now think about the picture that's going on here. What God is painting for His people. Now I want you to see in Luke chapter 22, verse 7 through 20. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room finished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Just think about this picture. Jesus knows. Jesus knows Exodus 12. Jesus watched Exodus 12 as it happened. Jesus knows what happens to the lamb in Exodus 12. Jesus knows what God does because of the lamb in Exodus 12. Like, to Jesus, I can only imagine that as he is talking to his disciples in 7 through 13 here, that he understands that what's being prepared in these next hours is he, the lamb. And then Jesus says, and when, uh, in verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Think about those words. I have earnestly desired to eat this with you. I'm sure there's got to be anguish in his voice at this point but a desire that trumps even his anguish. 
I mean, he admits the reality of suffering that is to come. Right there in the middle of that sentence. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, and I see the reality of my suffering coming. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. I mean, think about the blood. He knows his blood is going to ooze from his body. And when he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Like, this is not just symbolic for, like, for Jesus. Like, he's in his mind going, My body is going to be broken. It's coming. For you, it might just be a symbol. For me, it's coming. Just do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Exodus. Jesus. Passover, just a shadow of the ultimate reality is Christ. So here we see that the sovereign God of the Old Testament was delivering His people in Exodus by His devised, necessary plan was to paint a picture. We also see that God was giving His people a picture of the one that would come, a lamb that would come, that would set them free, not just from a physical oppression, but from a spiritual oppression enslavement you see that like do you understand that you were a slave to your sin just as those israelites were a slave to the egyptians that you tirelessly worked day in and day out to satisfy the idols that were in control of your life and that the people you work with that are not followers of Christ are enslaved, that are beaten day and day out. They are left empty and broken day after day because of the enslavement to their sin and their God. Do you see that? Do you see that day in and day out, you and I both struggle daily to not enslave ourselves back into that idolatrous worship that each day is a struggle to not go back to Egypt. We'd be better off in Egypt, some of us might say, with the way we live our lives. Jesus, though, has set you free. I mean, think about the... He has set you free. Free to be holy. Free to enjoy a relationship with Him. To worship. Truly worship. Church, I want you to see, the text wants you to see that God is sovereign to worship Him. Worship Him. I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, uh, the band's going to come up. And as soon as I get done praying, they're going to start their song. Um, and you guys just make your way up. We're partaking the Lord's Supper. We've already set the stage for the Lord's Supper. I pray that we do it with prayerful hearts and 
And just remember this picture of God in, in Exodus and worship Him. So I want to pray for us and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you for this picture, this robust, thick, glorious picture of you that you've painted for us in Egypt. Picture that you painted for us in the middle of Pharaoh's house. For this picture that you painted for us in the middle of destruction. The picture of yourself that you painted for us as the sovereign redeemer in the middle of oppression. This picture that you painted for us in the middle of their helplessness and hopelessness. This picture that we have to see that in the middle of our oppression, in the middle of our helplessness and hopelessness, that you are still the sovereign ruler and sovereign redeemer. So Father, I just pray that, that we would worship you as such not just in these next few moments, but all week long, and we would worship you according to that picture that you've chosen to reveal to us this day. Father, just, just desire for us to worship you. I just pray that as as the picture becomes more clear to us, just as you've revealed yourself in increasingly clearer measure, Father, I pray that as you reveal yourself to our individual lives through your word in increasingly clearer measure, that we would worship you with more fervor, with more awe, with more respect, with more enjoyment, with more love. So I just... Uh, Father, just thank you. Father, our hearts are prone to wander. But Father, you are faithful to rein our hearts back in. So Father, just thank you for these next few moments. And it's in your son's name that we pray. You guys can stand.